industry has a gap in terms of the knowledge that it's giving women, especially women who tend to outlive their husbands by an average of 15 years. And so from someone who has been on the receiving end of a life insurance policy at a very young age, I think I'm in a good position to tell you that, listen, you need to have maybe even two life insurance policies, not one. It's very good. You're listening into this podcast. It's amazing that we can share these stories with each other and learn from each other. And that's why I'm happy to be here sharing my personal story so that, you know, factor in all of that into your calculations for how much you need. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in in five, four, three, two, one. Journey to Launch is supported by First Republic Bank. Relationships really matter in your life journey and financial journey. A lot of banks have great offers to attract new clients, but what about their existing clients? First Republic is always focused on creating and nurturing long-term relationships, devising strategies, not tactics, and master plans, not transactions. That's why every client gets their own personal banker, a single point of contact to call, text, or email at any time for any reason. I love that I feel valued and supported as a First Republic client long after I've already opened up my account. They value their customers and it shows. First Republic calls it banking beyond the offer. And it's part of their commitment to extraordinary service. Isn't it time to discover what a long-term banking relationship can do for you? Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, Journeyers. I'm excited to be speaking with today's special guest, who is Keisha Blair. Keisha is a self-made jack-of-all-trades and an award-winning international best-selling author and trained economist, wife, widow, mother of three, and author of Holistic Wealth, founder of the Institute of Holistic Wealth, and so much more. We're going to get more into Keisha's amazing story and background, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So welcome to the podcast, Keisha. It's great to be here, Jamila. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And I was saying, I read in your bio um, that you were Jamaican and I was like, oh, we have that in common because I'm also Jamaican, even though people joke with me because I came here when I was two, but I'm Jamaican. So (laughs) big up to you. I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. So you are the author of a book called Holistic Wealth, and I'd love for you to start. We can start there because I feel like in this time, especially with us in this pandemic, which at some point we thought it would be like dying down and it doesn't seem to be like, who knows where we are in the midst of this. It just feels like this situation has caused a lot of us to look at what wealth really is and how we're using money to fuel our lives. And so I'd love for you to break down your definition of holistic wealth and why it's more important now than ever for us to be focusing on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's a very important question. So holistic wealth, as I've defined it in the book, comprises of various pillars. Like, for instance, it comprises financial independence, uh, emotional, spiritual health, uh, physical health, as well as a life purpose. And all of these things combine to make us more resilient and make us more whole during times of setbacks and during times of disruption. So 
you know, in the updated version of holistic wealth, I talk about the art of recovery from disruption and these pillars really get us through that period of disruption. And that's why it's so important. The concept of holistic wealth is so important during COVID-19 when we're all looking for that post-COVID life that we want to create, how we want to see ourselves coming out of this and kind of the life we all want to live. So that's why it's, it's so important now. And of course, these themes that, and these pillars have been really well covered in the media. They have been kind of the stories that we've been talking about since this pandemic happened. So that's why I think even now versus before, it's so much more important. Let's talk about the pillars a bit more. I know that financial independence, it can mean a lot of things. So I'm in, I always like to say I have one foot in the fire space, which is the acronym for financial independence, retire early for anyone who's first hearing that. And then there's just one in the personal finance space. And then I often hear people who are not even associated with the movement use financial independence and financial freedom. Like we use these words and we have our own definitions for it. So what does financial independence mean in the context that you're saying? Right. So in this context, it means being able to cover your living expenses without having to have a job. Now, for me, the retire early, I know I like how you say you have one foot in because that's kind of me too, right? Because I feel like the retire early part is completely up to you. If you feel like you are enjoying your job and you want to stay there for other reasons, well, by all means do that. If you feel like you want to hop out, but you want to have a side hustle or a business, you're not necessarily fully retired, but you've crafted a lifestyle where, you know, it's, it's something that is authentic to you and it's, it's not like you're, you know, beholden to, <laughs> to an employer, then, uh, power to you. But for me, I was financially independent from 31 and I had, you know, invested aggressively in my younger days, luckily to achieve that. And I still had my nine to five job. Like I still went back and some of the most important experiences for me, Jamila, came after that, you know, in terms of my professional development. So I do believe, and I was so young, like I was 31. I still had young kids. I felt like I still needed to do more. So for me, I'm like you, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I, I really think the financial independence part of it is critical rather than let's say retire at this point or retire early or retire. <laughs> I think that's totally up to, to, you know, how people feel and at what point people are at in their lives. Yes. Well, now, you know, when you just mentioned you reached financial independence at 31 and you had small kids, I heard that. So I have three kids myself. They're pretty young still. So I really want to go back now and understand how you were able to do that. You mentioned that you saved aggressively. So you are Jamaican and you immigrated to Canada. I'd love to just get that backstory because I have so many people who are like are in the trenches right now and are maybe where you were at one point and they're like, you did what at 31? And they want to know like how you did it. I migrated to Canada at age 20, I guess. I, I came directly in school. So I came and I landed in my postgrad, uh, you know, at Carleton University at that age. And I, I got my master's there and then went straight into work. So as many of you know, like I'm a trained economist and I went to work for the government here, eventually becoming a senior economist with the Department of Finance here and then transitioned from that to, to specialize in foreign direct investment, working on files related, you know, supporting the prime minister of Canada, um, you know, and traveled on various delegations to the World Economic Forum and different multilateral forums like that. And so, as I said, like that experience was amazing. And so in between those years, right? So I left Carleton. So let's go back to Carleton. <laughs> so I started investing before I graduated college. And I tell people this all the time. And I tell family members, even family members from Jamaica, Jamila, I'm like, listen, you can start investing even before you get a job. I know that I, you know what I did? I applied for all the scholarships and bursaries I could get, used some of my school fees to invest in real estate. Because for me at the time, my older brother loved real estate and I used to watch him investing and it was just like, wow, you know, I, and so I loved it. 
and I started investing. So I got these scholarships and bursaries, used them for my school fee and used my school fee to start investing in real estate. So I started doing it at 20 once I got to Canada and I didn't stop. So by the time, let's say I was, and this is before my husband died because we invested together, but I was the more aggressive one. I had just this need and this desire for that financial independence. And it was driven by, and a lot of people will see this in the book, right? It was driven by the fact that I had this this fear that my parents would die young and I would be alone and I needed to be financially independent. So for me, it was driven by this this whole host of other things that I had going on. And so I did that and I never stopped. So once I got the first property, I didn't stop I invested more until we had a portfolio and ended up being like a multi-million dollar portfolio of properties. And luckily at the point that he died, because you know, we haven't gone into that point that my, my husband died and I was 31. Luckily we had those investments and I was financially independent. Like I took a year off. You'll see that in the book you know, took on a one year unpaid sabbatical, went, went back to Jamaica, went back to my roots. I really wanted to find answers to lots of different questions I had. And it was because I was financially independent that I was able to do that. So it's helped me in so many ways that I'm now very, very passionate about, you know, saying this to women, like, look, I was widowed at 31. And whether or not you end up leaving your job or not, that's not the crux of it. The crux of it is, can you sustain yourself through this time of need when you might need to just pull back and just like concentrate on yourself for a long period to get yourself through that? And that's what I did. And luckily, I had the drive to do that, you know, and and of course, we had other things in place, like we had a life insurance policy, we had different things in place in addition to that real estate portfolio, but whether it's real estate or something else, another type of investment, you know, the the key lesson there is to just pursue what you like in terms of your investments and just really go for it and set yourself up because you never know. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it, Keisha. I just, I do want to go back because I'm thinking, um, I see so, so many similarities. I mean, you for far past me, like the real estate, with the real estate of investing part of it. But I remember being as driven as young as you were, about wanting to own real estate. And so I want to go back for you. I know what prompted me was seeing my grandmother immigrate here from Jamaica, not having anything and seeing her being able to buy something. And I was like, wait a second, I should be able to do something given the opportunity that I've been given to be here and being raised by a single mom. You said your older brother was into real estate. I just want to know like how you first got the idea. It seems like from your brother, but also the money, the capital at such a young age. And where were you investing? I know these times are different now. So like property values have increased, but was this in Canada? Was this in like the rural areas? Did you luck up at a, in like a market that was like unknown and then it began to appreciate? So brother was still, and he still lives in Jamaica. So I used to watch him just even as a younger sister looking on at her brother, just aggressively acquiring properties. And that was in Jamaica. And once I immigrated, I just basically not copied that pattern, but I was driven to kind of do a similar sort of thing. So I live in the capital. So I live in Ottawa, which is not like Toronto. In Toronto right now, there's an issue with a real estate bubble there. I mean, Ottawa is the hottest market for real estate right now since the pandemic. But when I came, you know, over 24, 25 years ago, that was not the case. It was this up and coming market that was easier to get into than say a Toronto or a New York City. And you could get in at an affordable rate. So my first, very first property was a townhome. It was a 1300 square foot townhome, three bedrooms. I'll never forget it. And, you know, I think the purchase price at that time was maybe 150K. It wasn't bad. And as I said, like I honestly applied for every scholarship and bursary I could. And I was successful with some of that. And I just used my school fee. Like I literally, and at that time I was engaged. So I was engaged to be married. And so we combined our funds and we came up with our 10% down payment. We combined whatever we had and we came up with our, our 10% or 15K and we we purchased. And I mean, that was like, let's say 25 years ago or maybe not so much, but 
let's say that was over 20 years ago. And today home prices, it's unbelievable. The home prices now, that townhome, I mean, I've sold it since, but I'm sure if I were to look it up now, that townhome is going for 700K. So you can imagine um, how much home prices have increased here. And as I said, this city is now the hottest home market in the country writ large. So now I have most of my properties here. I have a property in, in Jamaica. I have one in New York. Um, but the bulk of it is here. And because it's now the hottest home market, there have been lots of gains in the portfolio in terms of appreciation. And it's unbelievable because every single family home now here is at the $1 million mark. And that's why I, I honestly tell everyone that I can like invest, invest, invest. It's not about your job. It's not, you're not going to get wealthy there. You're going to get that type of financial freedom through investing. So I know real estate is my thing. Like you, Jamila, let's just honestly, just I'm all out for real estate, but whatever it is that suits you or that you're interested in, just, um, you know, try to learn as much as you can and, and go after it. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing, and I just want to pull out these elements from your story because income is important in these scenarios. And especially when you're younger and maybe you don't have as much uh, responsibilities, but like, yes, transforming your income into true wealth means you need to invest that income. So I love that. And, and, and obviously you were very ambitious and education was key. Like, I feel like the fact that you were at that age, like taking out the initiative to like get all the loans you could or the grants. And then, so you were using that to then leverage and get property. It's great. And I know there's maybe some young people listening and they're like, well, I live in a city now. Everything is at the top of the market. Let's just say they are interested in real estate. By the way, there are other things you can invest in. Like you can invest in the stock market. You can do other things, but let's just say real estate is their thing. They may be thinking like, well, yeah, Jamila and Keisha. And by the way, I only own, well, I don't want to say only, like it's not a big deal, but I own like one, um, rental property that I bought and lived in in my current home, right? But they might be looking at us and saying, well, you guys did that like 10, 15, 20 years ago when prices were reasonable, you know, quote unquote. What is there for me now as like a young 20 something year old? Like, how can I start to invest in real estate if I'm interested? What are your thoughts there for someone? Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I think about my kids too, right? When they grow older, what they'll be able to do. But I remember on the Holistic Wealth podcast that I host, I had this conversation too with another real estate investor. And I think there's some lessons there, um, both from my experience and from other women in their experience. And that is, you know what, look for small cap properties in neighborhoods that are up and coming, up and coming and pool your funds. So for instance, you might not have that 10K down payment or or, or the amount needed, but you can pool with, let's say, you know, two or three trusted individuals, whether it's family members or friends, you know, you know who, you know, in your network, you could depend on to, to go into like a, a, a partnership like that with. That's another key thing. And the other thing is, you know, my experience, I think, is still instructive. Honestly, I think if you're just starting out and you're looking to invest, think about the range of funds that you have available to you. Because some people might not have even thought about what I did in terms of using scholarships to pay my tuition and then using my school fee to invest. That's what I did. Wait, can I just interrupt you? Because I want to make sure I understand what you mean, actually, when you say school fee. So I know the scholarships help pay for the school, but what do you mean by school fee? So I applied for the scholarships and that was used to pay my tuition, right? And so I had that lump sum of funds in my bank account to pay my tuition. But because I got the scholarships, I used that you know money that I had to pay my tuition to start investing. You used it for both paying for your tuition and then if you had money left over, investing in property. Right. And for the most part, I will say if I look at the ratio of what went to what, most of it went to investing. The other thing that I did during school was, of course, I worked like not necessarily working this big full time job, but I worked part time wherever I could. I picked up things wherever I could to as well to help. So so when you think of, you know, the funds that you have access to, you might have a pot of money that's labeled X for this 
or why for that. Think about how you can get creative with the different pots that you have and what you can do to use some of, let's say, one pot to start investing. So there are some, you know, lessons in terms of finding someone to invest with, if that helps, you know, looking at the different pots of money that you have and really looking at properties that are more affordable, where you think there will be appreciation over time. So they're in decent neighborhoods that will attract renters that are close to amenities to schools, you know, close to all of those things that people will gravitate towards when they're renting. Because like my first property and first couple of properties were like that. They were near to schools, near to different amenities, and they were very, very attractive to renters. So I think, you know, if you're starting out now and you're wondering how to get your foot in the door, those are some of the things that I would advise. That's great advice. And when it comes now, as you're in your 20s, and you mentioned your husband passed away, and you were only 31. Luckily, you guys have been investing together. So there was like a nest egg from the real estate, but you mentioned insurance. And I want to just talk quickly about that, like how you were preparing for this unfortunate event, and then how much it helped you just so you know, a lot of us don't want to think about like all the bad things that can happen, but that we should have these things in place. Can you share some of that? Absolutely. So right before I had my first child, this was before my husband died, we decided to call in a financial advisor and take out a life insurance because we figured with, with becoming new parents, it was the best thing to do uh, to plan ahead financially. And luckily we did because my husband died three years later. So when you're in your 20s, like we were, you can get life insurance policies. I remember when we took ours out, it was probably $28 a month. Tops, tops. It went up maybe 10 years after to maybe 30. I mean, that's how low it is for a pot of funds that can really help you weather, you know, that type of setback, which is absolutely critical to being financially resilient. And I talk about that a lot you know, when I train, like, for instance, when I train coaches at the Institute on Holistic Wealth. So that's one other thing that I think is a critical piece that we all need to have in place. Because yes, you have your investments, but you also need that. And there's so many other reasons that I could get into why you need that. That it's unbelievable, Jamila, for instance, and I I just quickly like when my husband died, Obviously, you have funeral expenses. You might have travel expenses. We went back to Jamaica for the funeral. You might have other expenses, things that need to be paid off right now. And I mean, yes, everyone should have an emergency fund. Definitely, that's another critical aspect. But you want to also have a life insurance policy. Like you're not going to want to, you know, sell off property or you're not, you're going to be in a position where you're going to have a significant outlay of of costs right after the death of a loved one. Uh, It could be 25, 30K. The average funeral now is just unbelievable, right? So again, you know, when we think about that portfolio that you need to have, yes, your investments, your life insurance should be there, your emergency fund should be there. And all of those pillars are so important because like my story is just instructive, I think. We need to have all these different pots of money, the the different funds so that, you know, once that setback comes that we can use those funds that are readily available to us, let's say real estate might not be that in that bucket, but we need other buckets that might be readily available, like liquid investments that we can draw on to be able to finance whatever we need to do. Yeah. And even with the case of real estate, like I know we will tend to use that in our net worth calculations, like the equity, you know, of it, take out the mortgage. For me, it's more of like a safety net. Like I don't want to have to sell my real estate if something happens. Like I ultimately, like that would be the worst case. But oftentimes I think we think about that, oh, we have this thing and we'll use it, but it's not a liquid asset. And many times like you're emotionally attached to it. And so you make the decision if you have to, but practically speaking, it's like having money in accessible accounts, you know, especially if you're planning financial independence, like life. And I think about um, when I'm looking now at my new financial independence plan, how much money can we actually save in the non-retirement accounts and invest for the time to bridge the gap to when we need to touch that money. So I just feel like it takes really confronting 
life and our, I think, mortality and just taking action instead of like sitting and thinking, oh, it's too late. I'll just do it when it like happens. When it's just like, no, you don't want to do that. You want to start taking action now. Exactly. Exactly. And the amount that people think that's okay for them to have as a life insurance, I think that's increasing too. And that's the other thing I advise people is don't settle for just like a 300K policy. If you think about yourself with three kids and your husband dies, it's not going to carry you that far. You need to think about 800K, a million. If you think about me at 31, for instance, and I was left with two young kids, if you think about someone's lifetime salary over a 30-year period, right? Because that's what I would have missed out on if with my husband's salary, let's say. Then you should be thinking around that, that along those lines, right? Not necessarily just like, yeah, I'll get a 200K policy. I mean, yeah, that's fine. It's better to have a 200K policy rather than nothing. But do please like do that in the calculation, that opportunity lost, that cost, and do that over a 30-year period to see what would be ideal, especially if you have two, three, four kids, what would be ideal and the type of life that you would want if you want to take time off, you know, like factor that in your calculations. That's, that's, some, that's something else I tell people because I feel like the industry has a gap in terms of the knowledge that it's giving women, especially women who tend to outlive their husbands by an average of 15 years. And so from someone who has been on the receiving end of a life insurance policy at a very young age, I think I'm in a good position to tell you that, listen, you need to have maybe even two life insurance policies, not one. I mean, we had two life insurance policies. So it's very good. You're listening into this podcast. It's amazing that we can share these stories with each other and learn from each other. And and that's why I'm happy to be here sharing my personal story so that, you know, factor in all of that into your calculations for how much you need. Yeah. Did you know that most people are paying too much on their auto loan? It's true. Jen and Dave use AutoApprove to refinance, replacing their overpriced loan with a cheaper loan and a lower monthly payment. They used the money they saved to finally take that family lake trip they'd always talked about. What would you do with more money in your pocket? AutoApprove connects vehicle owners with the best available rates to refinance their current car loans with no markups ever and handles the paperwork. Yes, even the DMV. Making it simple to save thousands and lower your monthly payments. They do it by instantly accessing the nation's most competitive lenders to find your savings immediately. When you refinance with AutoApprove, you get an advocate that works for you to make sure you get a great deal. In fact, in 2021, AutoApprove was able to save their customer on average almost $1,700 a year. That means more money for road trips, family vacations, and visits to grandma's house, more money for what matters most. So what are you waiting for? You deserve a lower monthly car payment. Free up more money today for your next adventure when you refinance with AutoApprove. Find out how much you can save at AutoApprove.com slash journey to launch. That's A-U-T-O-A-P-P-R-O-V-E dot com slash journey to launch. Let's talk about what is professional today. On LinkedIn, important conversations are happening around what it means to be a professional. What's considered professional has vastly changed from decades, even just years ago. Right now, LinkedIn members are talking about things like needing more flexibility around where we work, how we work, and even taking time away from work to focus on family or mental health, because those things should not stunt career development and growth. Instead, they should enhance it as we show up on our own terms. Members are even putting what's most important to them in their job titles with things like podcast host slash activist slash mom. I know I'm going to update it to say podcast host slash author slash financial freedom crusader. Professional is ours to define and our authentic self is our professional self. So if your LinkedIn doesn't reflect who you really are, update your job title, post your truth. Show the world the authentic, professional you and join the conversations redefining professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, welcome professionals. 
talk about as we're looking now at holistic wealth and how someone can like start to assess maybe part of it now is just like, all right, I want to have like holistic wealth. And so I'm looking at these pillars that Keisha has just said, and can you just name them one more time? And then we can talk about a couple more of them in, in detail. Sure. So uh, there's the financial independence pillar and, and, and that pillars within that holistic wealth portfolio. It's called your financial independence portfolio. And then there's the emotional and spiritual aspect. And within that, it's called your emotional and spiritual portfolio. And that's part of the holistic wealth portfolio. And then there's there's your health, well-being, and relationships. And so that's kind of like another pillar. And there are the different pillars that really combine to allow you to achieve holistic wealth. And that's one of the things that I'm training, you know, certified holistic wealth consultants on now is to structure that portfolio in a real practical way for people. And Jamila, some of the things we were talking about now are in there. And when we talk about a life purpose, which is also part, I tell people, you need to have a personal mission statement and your money mission can come under that. And that's how it breaks down practically in terms of crafting a portfolio. And of course, you can't imagine like the financial independence piece of it is big because it captures everything we were talking about and more. And when you read the book, it you can see how it really ties together nicely in terms of the key aspects and what you would need for that holistic wealth portfolio. I know for me, for, this is why I put these together, Jamila, is because, look, we had a life insurance policy. We had investments. I was financially independent. That is not enough to get you through. You need to have those key relationships. You need to have your mental and emotional well health taken care of. You need to, your spirituality, like all of that is what gets you through the day-to-day grief, that feeling like you're overwhelmed, that you won't make it. The money is great because you will, you know, you'll be able to, to take care of yourself. But what about the other parts of us that are key to being resilient? The other parts of us that are key to overcoming that setback so that we can chart a way forward. And, and those are the other key components within that portfolio that each of us needs. Yeah. And it's why I think while you're on the path to acquiring more, paying off debt, like increasing your net worth, like the money side of it, which is important, but all that other, other things, components you talked about that make us human, that make us uniquely us, our relationships, our emotions, like that is the key and driving force to like a well-lived life. Like the money is important to cover our basic needs. But I often find that so much of it is focused on just like the act of doing the thing, the act of paying off the debt, the act of investing, where it's just like, what's your ultimate vision for your life? Like, what do you really want to encompass? Forget like what the money, the money side of things, but what do you want your day to look like and feel like? And who do you want, you know, to be able to call on? And so I'd love to hear from you. I know you said the mission statement is important. What is like your mission statement? Like if someone's now sitting and thinking, well, I like, yeah, I need to have a mission statement. What are the components of one? And can you share maybe your mission statement with us? Sure. Like, it's amazing the whole concept of the mission statement, because I find that that's what enabled me to really chart a life forward and not necessarily think about my identity within the context of any one job title or anything. It was this larger mission in terms of how I could help humanity. And so mine is wrapped up in this holistic wealth message, this mission to help as many people as I can achieve holistic wealth. And you see that mission within the different things that I do. Like I've set up this Institute on Holistic Wealth. I set up the Holistic Wealth podcast and the books that I'm writing. And so I'm training holistic wealth consultants to help me help people to craft their own holistic wealth portfolios. So that's mine. I mean, mine is longer. It's in the new edition of the book. And so it it really, it encompasses a lot of things in terms of my story of self too. And this is another point I want to tell people. So for me, I was a widow. I, you know, I was widowed at 31. That's a part of my story of self. I was a maternal near miss survivor with my first child. That's a part of my story as well. And I know lots of Black women go through that. So maternal health, especially Black maternal health is a part of my mission. And I've weaved that into my mission statement. I've also weaved into my mission statement, helping widows. And, and I've done that through this 
online website I have called The Modern Widow and mentorship through Aspire Canada, which is another website that I set up. So you can see where my personal mission statement, and this is something that I coach people with, it should be aligned with your story of self in terms of what you've been through and how you can help people in this unique way because of your unique experiences. And how are you going to execute that? And, you know, I've spoken about some of the things that I've done. And if you look in your own life, you'll see where there's this mission that's so much bigger than any one job or any one title or even being financially independent. It's this mission that you're putting forward as a legacy that you'll leave behind, hopefully, for people to be able to have these practical lessons that they're applying in their lives from your own unique journey, which I think is is really a gift. And I know for me, I've really been so blessed by it that I can do this from my unique experience, like everything combined, you know, um, about my story, about the skills that I have, my profession as an economist and what I've been able to learn from that to help others to really craft a life of holistic wealth. So that's it in a nutshell uh, for me and in terms of my personal mission and it's aligned with my values. And in the Holistic Wealth Personal Workbook, I have case studies for people who want to craft their own mission statement. And we do have a template on the Institute website as well for people who want to use a template to just kind of just get through it and just craft their own personal mission statement. Do you have some ideas or things that someone could start to pull from? Like what I'm envisioning a mission statement, like you said, there's probably I want this or are there components of it that they should be including or values that you can uh, give us some examples of what would be included? Yeah, sure. So in terms of values, community oriented is one, organized, dependable. There's a list of values in the book that you can use to craft yours. And when you think about those values, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I'm community oriented, but how will you um, practically implement that community part of it. Like, for instance, when I just said that the holistic wealth consultants are in their communities helping people. So some of the ways they do that is they do workshops with the girl guides. They do workshops with teens and these are all free. They do workshops, you know, on financial literacy within their communities. And, and so when you craft your mission statement, when you think about those values, think about how you're going to practically translate those values into action, into like action points and goals that should come under your mission statement. Because of course your goals should come under your mission statement too. And of course in the book, there's a whole chapter on goals and, and really how to craft your goals well to achieve your mission. So that's, that's also part of crafting that mission statement and how to do it well. Right. Now, but what if you do have a lot of values? Can they be competing values where you can't focus all of them at once? Like even when I'm thinking about what you define as holistic wealth and what I know to be what encompasses like a full life, like all the things we should be focusing on. It, like it's a lot. Being an adult, it's a lot of work, like because you got to worry about your money and finances, your friendships, your romantic relationships. If you have kids, add that in there. Plus you have to drink enough water and like stay healthy. How do you add that all in and prioritize those things? How have you found um, to do that? And then how does one not get overwhelmed? Because what I'm finding is most people get overwhelmed by all the things. And then that's why a lot of things slip through the cracks. For the mission statement, it's good to craft it so that it really encompasses your personal and your professional goals, right? So it can accommodate both. Where I think we get tripped up in terms of competing goals and really not being aligned throughout is where we may say things like, yeah, I want to climb the corporate ladder and kind of get to the top of uh, my organization. But at the same time, I want to spend that much time with my family. So I think, you know, we have to be very clear and honest with ourselves that if we're crafting a mission statement and we're putting in personal and professional goals that they're not contradictory and that we're not overreaching and thinking, yeah, I can do this as a mom and I can climb the corporate ladder and still spend 
X hours with my family, that might be a goal that's competing and it might not be possible. So in crafting the personal mission statement, it's important that yes, we're, we're combining personal and professional goals in there, but it has to be really aligned with, with something that's practical, the, the ideal life we want to live, what we want that lifestyle to be like. And it should help you chart a course forward that's mission led, mission oriented. So again, if you have, you know, like pro- professional goals in there or you have something professional in there, make sure that it's more mission led, mission oriented than say, um, wrapping up your identity in reaching CEO by 25 or something like that. So, so that's what I would do. And, and of course, for other action verbs and qualities to include passionate, innovative, loyal, open-minded, courageous, dependable, and also, you know, putting your money mission in there, putting that money mission under your personal mission statement too. So I think, you know, you just need to to think through really from a very self-aware perspective on, on what we really want to achieve. And I'm curious, like you were financially independent at 31. And so a lot of what you're doing now, it's would I'm, I'm assuming it's by choice. Like you don't have to, but you know, you can correct me from if I'm wrong, but people who have not reached financial independence, like the true state of it, meaning like I really do have enough where I don't have to work. Then it's just like, okay, what would I really do with my time? If I don't need to earn money, would I still actively create businesses and run businesses? I feel like a lot of people, including myself, when we're still on the journey, it's just like you envision your life to be totally different. Like in my head, I'm just like, oh, well, once I reach financial independence, I'll podcast really whenever I want. Like maybe it will just be, it'd be in seasons and a couple of times a month, I'll pop up with some podcasts and that's, that's it. I'll be on the beach elsewhere. But that's what I think now. Whereas maybe if I still reach it, like that's not the case because there's a, there's something bigger pulling me to do more and want to disseminate this information. What drives you to keep going or to be as ambitious as you are in sharing your story versus, all right, I have enough money. I have enough assets. I don't have to do any of this. Yeah, no, for sure. And so for me, this new mission around holistic wealth kind of is what drove me. And I'll, I'll tell you a story too of when we published the first edition of the book, you know, women in the financial industry came forward to me and they read the book and they said, listen, we want to be certified. Like we want a certification program in holistic wealth. And I had no intentions of doing that. I figured maybe along the line, maybe I do some coaching, maybe, but maybe loosely, you know, and they said, no, we'll pay for it before it's even crafted. We don't care. We feel this is a gap. We have to help women. And these women were certified financial analysts who were in the field, in the weeds, helping women. And they knew that the current financial advice was not good enough. They saw the gaps in my book through my own personal story. I had a unique advantage because I was on the receiving end of a life insurance policy at 31. And there's so many people in the financial industry who go around selling life insurance who don't even have that experience. They don't know what it is to be on the back end, the receiving end and the process, what needs to happen, what you need to put in place. And so they came and they're like, we want a certification. So the first half of lockdown I got to writing that and produced it. And we have, you know, certified holistic wealth consultants. And that's an example of how the journey can just evolve where you never plan. Of course, I set up the Institute to house kind of this kind of mission now where the journey is evolving. People come to you and they're like, listen, this is a need. We have a need to educate women. And most of those consultants said to me, we are doing it already and we're doing it free, but we want to put your perspective in. We want to put some of the lessons you've identified in your book in. And so, of course, that started me on this new journey. And yes, being financially independent is great, but having that impact and working with these women who are already in the field is just a much more greater thing that I've been called upon to do. A lot of us see ourselves chilling on a beach in Jamaica, maybe when we're financially independent, but I think all of us are here for a purpose and a mission. And I know that as a fact, and I know that our mission isn't ended once we reach a magic number for financial independence. So most of us are here to drive humanity forward in some way, shape or form. And we have that 
unique purpose set out from even before we realize that we have that purpose. And so it does not end at a magic number. It does not end when we feel we should be chilling on a beach. It, it It's humanity calling on us to, to give back. And for many of us, we'll want to honor that and we'll want to give back as much as we can. And that's the position that I'm in right now where you know, I'm doing this kind of work because people came forward and, and asked me to, and, and it's an honor to do that. So I think until my mission is done on this earth, that I will be giving back in some form or shape to communities and to women. And, and I, I couldn't think of anything more important. So I think, you know, if we think about it in that framework. Yeah. Yeah. So you currently still live in Canada. It sounds like you have homes, other places, which is amazing. I have Canadians who listen to the podcast. When I'm usually talking about investing, I'm more, you know, I'm looking at it through my lens of investing in the United States, but I have sisters who live in Canada. Two, two of my sisters live in Canada. I have a lot of family back in Jamaica. And this is going to be quick because I know like this would have to probably be a whole new episode, but for Canadians and investing, what is like a way in which someone can start to, with the number side of things, if they're in Canada, set themselves up for success? We talked about real estate already, but what are the investing options there? How is it different? Yep. So it's it's pretty much the same as the United States. I think it's pretty much the same, although we call things different things. Like you, you say 401k, we say ours. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> things like that. It's just kind of like basically the same thing. There are a few difference in tax laws, essentially, but it's the same. I think we have different tools here in Canada that can set you up well for investing. Like, you know, I used to advocate for the tax-free savings accounts because it's tax-free. You can save there. And of course, you know, when I started out too, I started out on high interest savings accounts. And, you know, if I had to park a set of funds, then I would park it there. But definitely it's, it's, it's the same for both countries. And it's really just about maximizing and knowing how to leverage you know, money that you have, whether you want to invest in real estate or stocks or something else. And really just, you know, I, I also advocate as an economist to have like a team around you. Like I, I had a financial advisor pretty young, uh, right out of, you know, school. I, I had a financial advisor. I still do, even though I am an economist and I train financial advisors. Now I still have my personal financial advisor. So. I think those are the critical things that you need to have to invest. So financial advisor, just quickly on that, how does one determine like finding the right one? Because I think that's where people get tripped up. Like I know they need to be a fiduciary, which means they have more responsibility to you. They're not going to make money off of the things that they're selling you. But I find that in the search for one or thinking of one, people are so afraid of like spending money on something or someone that potentially is doesn't have their best interest. Yeah. And, and you're right. That's a really good question. I found mine by accident. And to be honest with you, I did not do that whole due diligence that I will advise people to do. I find, I found mine by accident. It worked out really well. He was the one that looked at all our finances and said, listen, you need life insurance. And this is how much I'm recommending. We went over and above that, but I would advise people to definitely do your research. And make sure, you know, that financial advisor is aligned with your own goals so that they're not just coming to sell you like here, buy this mutual fund or here, buy these range of instruments because I come bearing instruments to sell you. It's about, okay, well, I'm crafting a holistic wealth portfolio here and I want to be able to craft it in a way that will make me more resilient in terms of my investments too. So that's a good place to start with a conversation with a financial advisor, not just like getting you to buy some financial products because the financial industry right now, I will say is flawed in that way. It's about, yeah, buy this mutual fund or buy this life insurance. You want to do it in a way that really sets you up. And some some financial advisors are, are biased against even real estate because they don't make money when you buy real estate. They make money when you buy mutual funds, some of them. So, so right. So we have to look at those things and think about what we really want. And if you know you're crafting a portfolio, which I hope everybody's thinking about everything in a portfolio context and, and making you more resilient, then you're thinking about the pieces that you want and how they align with your personal goals. Like if you want to take time off, you know, we want to take a couple of, 
of years break, or you want to do something else with your life, you want to do some volunteer work abroad, everything in that portfolio has to again be structured in a way that will enable you to do that. And I think just to help with people if they're thinking about when they're talking to, because I have now a financial um, planner that helps like a team now that helps me too. And it was really important for me to work with people who understood the concept of financial independence and retiring early. And the questions were asked that are asked are not just how much money can we save you in taxes, but what are your life goals? What do you want to do by 40, 45? Like, so if I'm now someone who's now searching for someone and you're listening to this, it's like, if I'm interviewing financial planners or advisors, I'm going to be asking those questions. Like I have some life plans and things I want to do. How can you help me do that? And then I think their response to that will be kind of be indicative of if they're able to look at the whole you, not just like how much money do you have to invest, but why are you investing? Are they asking you the right questions when you push back and have questions for them? Are they patient? Are they explaining things to you? Um, so that's just my two cents too, about finding someone. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Keisha, this was delightful. Please tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your book. Absolutely. So the new and expanded Holistic Wealth, it's available for pre-order right now. And you can get that online, everywhere online, Amazon, Indigo, uh, Barnes & Noble, Target. It's everywhere now. It's available for pre-order. My website is KeishaBlair.com. Feel free to reach out to me. My email is info at KeishaBlair.com. And I love hearing from listeners and from readers. And on social media, I'm at Keisha O. Blair. And that's for Twitter and Instagram. And for Facebook, it's Keisha Blair Author. And again, feel free to reach out on social media as well. And of course, we have the Holistic Wealth Podcast and the Institute. So that's also available for people who want to tune in. Awesome. I will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Keisha, again for this. Thank you so much, Jamila. It was really good being here. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me in the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here. So show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.